0: Welcome to the Barbend podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your guest host, Jake Boley, and this podcast is presented by Barbend.com. Today I'm talking to Dr. Jordan Fagenbaum, who, in my opinion, is one of the top strength coaches pushing the envelope for improving current training practices. Dr. Fagenbaum received his doctorate of medicine in 2016 and is the founder of Barbell Medicine. And mind you, this is all on top of being an accomplished powerlifter. In today's episode, I talk to Dr. Fagenbaum about a variety of topics within the world of strength and conditioning, including things like bridging the gap between exercise and medicine, what the public gets wrong about pain, and much, much more. We're incredibly thankful that you listened to this podcast. So if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbin Podcast in your app of choice. Every month, we give away a box full of Barbin swag to one of our listeners who leaves a rating and review. Today, we are joined on the Barbin Podcast with Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, the founder of Barbell Medicine and an accomplished powerlifter. How's it going? That's good, Jake. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Of course, man. It's pumped to have you on. You're one of my idols in this industry, and it's a pleasure to have you. Um, To give a little bit of context into who you are, would you mind sharing a little bit of your background and kind of your upcoming for other athletes out there who may not know you yet? Sure, yeah. Uh, So my name is Jordan Feigenbaum. I started Barbell Medicine. It's my company in 2012
1: when I entered into medical school. Uh, My background from a training um, standpoint is I started powerlifting in 2010, I think is when I did my first meet and, uh, been competing, uh, ever since in the sport. Uh, if you can call powerlifting a sport anyway. Um, so my best total as a 198 lifter, uh, raw is, uh, 1795. Uh, this is a 640 squat, 440 bench press and, uh, 725 pound deadlift at 198. And so that keep trying to improve upon that. I've got a meet coming up in three weeks and uh we'll see at some point i'm gonna have to switch sports but like the only thing that i did athletic wise before this i used to race dirt bikes uh for a long time at a pretty high level that's actually how i got into lifting not like through training for motocross but rather i uh, had a nasty crash the summer between my first year of college and uh the second year of college and i dislocated my hip and so once they reduced it i actually had trouble like I just had some loss of function. Like I couldn't really stand on my own and walk or whatever. So when the home PT came like to my house and was, she was like, Hey, okay. So we're going to start your PT. I'm like, okay, neat. Like what are we going to do? And she's like, all right, stand up off the couch. So stand up. And she's like, all right, sit down and then stand up. And she's like, good. we're going to do these. You know, I forget how many sets and reps she told me to do, but I was like, Oh, this seems like squatting. I'd never lifted weights at that time. And so, but that's what kind of got me into it. So I went into the gym and uh, I didn't know that you could actually squat, anything between like the empty barbell and 135. I thought, cause all you look around and all you see are people putting 45s on machines or like leg press or whatever. I'm like, Oh, i was put 45 on there meanwhile like a few weeks earlier i was having trouble actually like standing up off the couch without assistance and uh in any event so i got under the bar with 135 and i walked it out and it tried to go down i'm sure i was high like a mile high but then i couldn't stand back up so i had to dump it was, so the, just think about how tra- traumatizing that is like the very first time you ever try to squat you you dump it so that was my introduction into lifting weights but um uh, yeah, got on YouTube and uh, tried to figure out <laughs> how to lift weights. And then, um, so that must have been 2000, that must have been 2004. And then, uh, yeah, just stuck with it ever since. Had some Did some different stuff before I actually found that I wanted to compete in powerlifting. But yeah, I uh, did that. And I, still, I still am competing. So I have a meet three weeks from now. I don't know when this is going to go up. But if it's after October 12th, I'll have competed. And so <laughs> maybe you can check
0: my social media and be like, hey, I had a good meet or uh, or not so. Well, that's amazing and I think that coming back from an injury, I think teaches you a lesson that a lot of people don't necessarily get unless they go through that. So that's really cool that you found strength from accomplishing and overcoming that. And kind of to spin off of what you said, how you kind of had an indirect intro into this whole world of fitness and coaching and strength coaching and even medicine for that matter. One of the things that I think is most intriguing about your background is your educational background. And I would love to kind of start there and talk about how you went from biology to a doctor of medicine and kind of the route that you went down that road getting there. Because I think, at least for me personally, a lot of questions I often see on your social media is about education. And if you think it's worth having those bigger master's degrees, doctorates behind your name. So I would love to hear your thoughts there.
1: Yeah, uh, the the running joke, especially my own family, is that I I try to find the most indirect route <laughs> to the final goal. I mean, that's how it, it was with uh, with strength training, certainly, and then um, with my education. I actually started out. I originally went to school to be uh, what I guess most uh, universities would call a philosophy major. So, and anyway, that that didn't work out. I went to the small school in Arkansas for a year and a half. Uh, actually, Greg Knuckles went there too. So, like. We didn't know each other and I, cause I think he's much younger than I am, but yeah, we ended up at the same place. But, uh, I left and I switched my major to biology. Cause I just thought science, like I want a science degree, but I wasn't like pre-med or pre, you know, anything. I just wanted a science degree. Graduated with the biology degree from Truman state. And, uh, it turns out you can't do anything with a biology degree. Like there's really nothing for you to do except for go on to professional school, like get your master's PhD, medical school, you know, whatever. Um, so I ended up working in a lab. Uh, a company called Vitech systems, which uh, they basically are a microbiology company, I think they 've rebranded, but anyway, Boeing owns them. I worked there for three months and I hated every minute of it I literally i mean because I was just pouring plates like that you would stain different bacteria on, so I hated that um, ended up uh, trying to figure out a new way to make money and I was like, "What do I like to do? I was like, "I love training and I love researching this stuff so i 'll just uh, i 'll work as a personal trainer so I got a job doing that. And uh, I loved it fell in love with it. It took my business took off, which is probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. Uh, but I did also, I had this imposter syndrome thing going on where I was like, I don't think I know enough. Like I know how to lift weights. I know um, you know how to coach this stuff, but Just which at that point was based on trial and error. Cause there were no resources back in 2007, 2008 on how to, how to really do this. Um, but so I was like, I'm just going to amass as many different credentials as I can. Cause that's going to make me feel better. So I was like, Okay, I already have my CSCS, I'm going to get my ACSM HFS cert, I'm going to get my uh, USAW cert, I'm going to get CrossFit certified, I'm going to get my RKC, I'm going to get CISSN nutrition, cert. like all these different things, which, you know, in hindsight, didn't prepare me to train anybody, like it really didn't. It just gave me more letters after my name. On the flip side, though, it did allow me to move into a position with the company I was working for as a coach, um, as a more educational role which got me further kind of in, you know, ingrained in I need to learn more if I'm going to be responsible for teaching these trainers how to train, uh, which ultimately led to me thinking about higher education because I was like, should I go get a PT degree? Should I go get a master's in something? Should I go to medical school? And I kind of had this conversation um, with a couple of close friends and mentors. And um, basically, the only thing that was like worthwhile for me, given how old I was, I was 24 at the time and like what I was doing in my career already was medical school but I'd been out of school already for a number of years and so I needed to figure out a way to shore up my my resume my my application so I ended up getting a master's in anatomy and physiology from St. Louis University School of Medicine Um, I actually taught anatomy to their med students and PA students as well as neuroanatomy and so that was fun a fun experience for me and after that I applied to medical school got in went to medical school uh, and then ended up doing a residency at UCLA in family medicine. So yeah, I, I spent some extra years in there like working and getting a master's. I mean, I could have, if I would have gone to medical school, like right after undergrad, I think I would have had a much different experience if I even would have been successful, like applying and like going through it in the first place. But I, uh, so yeah, again, a, this very indirect route, but having all that educational experience, I do think, gives me some insight when people ask those questions like, should I go get this professional degree? And I don't know that there's one answer for that. It just really depends on what do you want to do? If you need like additional professional licensure to do what you really want to do, like, hey, knock yourself out. On the other hand, if you just want more education to know more things, I don't know that you always have to pick a formal route for that. Uh, So for instance, a lot of adult learning programs, there's a lot of uh, sort of like master class or mentorship kind of programs that may be more suitable. It really just depends on what you want to do. Um, but you know, spending a whole bunch of money, uh, both like it costs money to go to school and then opportunity cost of like actually going and not working and stuff might not always be the best solution. Uh, but for me going through medical school and, and, and stuff like that was a, was a good trade-off.
0: Yeah, I, I totally understand that. And something you said in there, kind of stuck out to me and that was on the topic of imposter syndrome I think that yeah. I think that's something that a lot of coaches actually experience especially when they're younger in the game because you don't have the years with a ton of athletes yet you haven't really nailed down what you fully believe in you're testing a bunch of different methodologies can you kind of speak to that and how you worked through that along the way especially as you went through maybe your education you started to build more of your client base your business itself Sure yeah I mean I think when you start out you don't have
1: any experience or much experience at all Um, you can, you can really go one of two ways, although I do think you end up experiencing both. So the first way you could go is being overconfident. Like I know all these things, I'm the expert, you know, and you almost feel like you need to have this confidence in in order to not only sell your services to people, but also like make sure that they trust you. Uh, On the other hand, I think if you experience that initially, then the more you learn, or even if you're not like, Actively seeking knowledge, you end up coming across things that challenge your beliefs. Uh, you start thinking like, "Oh crap, maybe I don't know this stuff so well." And so then you you kind of get insecure about uh, your knowledge base, your skill set, um, especially when you come into contact with people who may have either have more experience than you, more education, or both. And so so at that point, you you start to you know kind of doubt yourself, and and it's it's really it's a it's a struggle. So. Uh, alternatively, you could start from the very beginning. You may not be very confident in your skill set, which is almost appropriate because even if you like come out, and you have a degree and you have some personal experience. If you've not had experience, for instance, coaching people, um, you you just you you that's what you lack. That it's hard to be like I'm an expert right now. It's like really though, how many years have you been doing this with other people? Like, where's your pedigree? So um, the best advice I can give for people, uh, I would prefer that folks come out and be, I guess very self-aware of like where they're at on this curve. Um, You know, the, 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 it's not so much a learning curve. It's more just like a career experience curve. It's like, if you're just starting um, the knowledge base, the fund of knowledge that you have is a good primer for like how to critically assess things, how to think about things, how to interpret new data, new knowledge, new skills. But it's not like, well, I've got this knowledge. It's never going to change. It's very dynamic. Um, it, one of the funny things they said in medical school was like, at the very beginning, they were like, look, 50% of the stuff that we're going to teach you in the next four years is going to be wrong. We just don't know which 50%. And so it's like, <laughs> yeah, you, but, but you know, and when, you, when you, from the outset, that statement is like, oh gosh, that's incredibly daunting. But when you start thinking about your education as sort of a, a way to uh critically think and assess and interpret things and kind of gain new knowledge from your own like personal goal-directed sort of education then it becomes a much less stressful situation so i would prefer that people come out when they're starting a new endeavor just be self-aware of your own limitations that's fine right you don't have to be overconfident um the it's it's much more beneficial to tell somebody when they ask you a question like i don't know or i'm not sure i'm going to investigate versus just making something up on the spot it's, uh, especially uh on the internet where people can do so anonymously and like Make egregious claims and not really have uh, a bunch of repercussions. Um, also, familiarizing yourself with the Dunning-Kruger effect is would be <laughs> super useful. Just because the less you know about a topic, the more confident you're likely to feel about your own personal knowledge. Um, another great like little, you know, quip is uh, everybody thinks they're an above-average driver, for instance, which is <laughs> statistically impossible. So just like everybody thinks that they're above-average, trainer, coach. Doctor or whatever. Again, statistically impossible. So uh, it's highly likely that you have an average skill set and average sort of uh, fund of knowledge. That's okay. Trying to improve from there um, is the the main thing that I I would advocate for. So and then and then finally, trying not to get personally invested in a pet theory or pet like sort of. Uh, uh, you know, kind of understanding uh, of of things because things change so often, so frequently that really you should base your opinions on your experience as it combines with the current evidence. And since that's all going to change, I don't know that making super confident claims and being uh you know adversarial towards other individuals who share different views is really helpful. All it's going to do is frustrate you. In addition to, you're probably both going to be wrong in 20 years. So one thing that Austin and I, Dr. Baraki, uh, another uh, physician at Barbell Medicine, we always joke about like, hey, 20 years from now, most of the stuff that we say right now is going to be wrong in some way or another. That doesn't mean that I feel that imposter syndrome anymore right now. Um, it just means that I'm more comfortable being either uncertain or potentially being wrong. I'm I'm I'm, I'm comfortable with that, uh, but. When I say things, I try to provide the right caveats, so I'm not like, you know, uh, marrying myself to a certain theory or certain statement. Because I don't want somebody to come back and say, "Well, you said that without a doubt, always it's like this." And I'm like, "Well, yeah, that was wrong. That's tough to swallow." You know, so it's easier to have uh, to to kind of be a little more skeptical, a little more subdued with your opinions. I think.
0: I agree, and I I love all of that, man. And that kind of is a perfect segue into my next question for you, which. It revolves around Barbell Medicine and how you founded it and kind of the principles that that stands behind. Because I want to know, along the way, when you thought of that idea and you really started to accelerate it, because over the last couple of years, man, Barbell Medicine has taken off. And it's been awesome to see. You guys are across every media platform now, which is phenomenal. And the content you put out, I think, is the perfect example of what you just explained, of being objective enough with what you know, but also understanding that things could very well change, but here's the best of what we know and we've experienced in the moment. So to go off there, man, how, uh, how did you come up with Barbell Medicine and the principles behind it? Sure. Yeah. yeah that's a good
1: question. Um, and I like the way you describe what we're doing because that is honestly, you know, the, the goal. Uh, Barbell Medicine. So to be honest, the way it started when I went to medical school, I had gotten out of this educational uh, sort of uh, position that I was uh, I was at at another at another company i um, in St. Louis where I'm from, and uh, I had a lot of clients and trainers who were reaching out to me for information, and uh, they were like, "Hey, we're willing to pay you to like continue on remotely," and I was like, "Oh, that's a thing. I didn't even know that." So that was what 2011 or 2012, something like that. And so I, I decided just to start this company, and uh, I was coming. I was trying to come up with a name for it. I was in medical school, and I was like, "I'm pretty into resistance training." Let's call it barbell medicine. And, uh, but it was really just a coaching slash, uh, educational company at that time. And it was mostly one-on-one uh, consultations with, uh, either lifters, uh, general gen pop trainees or, or coaches. Like for instance, I would do a, a, a weekly call like regional call with all these trainers and managers from Gold's gym once a week where they would literally just pepper me with questions for an hour, which was, you know, it's like an Instagram live before Instagram live was a thing. Um, and, but, you know, what happened was during my, I remember this, during my first year of medical school, uh, the way medical school is set up, if you guys aren't aware, is the first two years are all clinical work, uh, or sorry, uh, uh, preclinical work. So, it's all in the classroom, um, whereas the second, latter two years, third and fourth year are all, like, in the hospital, you're on rotations and stuff. So, you're learning all these subjects, uh, you know, your typical gross anatomy, pathology, immunology, you know, all this stuff. Um and you learn kind of these core scientific principles, but they're, when it comes to this sort of actual management you know, of a disease or a condition, you get basically the pharmacolo- like the pharmacology, and there's some lip service paid to lifestyle change, like, oh yeah, and if you lose weight, people do better, for instance, with diabetes. Or if they start exercising, people with diabetes do better. Uh, but my own personal experience with coaching folks, with these medical conditions, with high blood pressure, with diabetes, was that exercise, uh, particularly resistance training and nutrition modification, could have this huge, huge impact? And I was like, why is this not a thing that we're learning? Is there like an organizational group who's, you know, trying to bridge the gap, quote unquote, between, um, you know, strength and conditioning and 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 medicine? And uh, there wasn't. There isn't. And I was like, well, who better to do that than me? I mean, because at that point I had been coaching for a number of years at a reasonably high level, and then I was also about to be a physician. So, at that point, we kind of pivoted. We're, we're still doing the, the coaching, but our main thing, we wanted to expand our educational sort of content to provide uh, medical practitioners with the knowledge on how to implement different lifestyle changes with their patients and how that could benefit their patient outcomes. So, For instance, each doctor should be familiar with the current exercise guidelines, how to recommend them, uh, and the relative benefit they can have for certain conditions because we feel like that knowledge base would improve the recommendation rate or the counseling rate for for exercise. Uh, just as a, an aside, a, a statistic that is really kind of telling of where we're at, although, admittedly, this is kind of uh, outdated at this point. We just haven't had a new study that's come out to give us new rates. Less than 10% of all primary care physicians are familiar with the current exercise guidelines. And of of those 10%-ish, less than half of them actually recommend them to their patients. So it's like, okay, huge need here considering the potential benefits and also considering that uh, like the World Health Organization and the uh, the American Medical Association, both rank uh, you know set being sedentary as one of these huge risk factors for nearly all diseases in their top five. Um, so, I thought, wow, there's something we should we should we should do here. So uh, we wanted to give uh, physicians and healthcare pr- practitioners a resource that they could trust and that they could get information from, um, and then we also wanted to give strength coaches or personal trainers or both um, and for resources for how they may might want to manipulate these lifestyle interventions that they're in the trenches, giving administering, um, for their patients who have high blood pressure, who have type two diabetes, who have these other conditions because there is some nuance there. And so we really wanted to serve both groups and then also just bridge the gap. And, uh, so that really started maybe 2013. And, uh, since then we've been off to the races, uh, it's funny because when I was in residency, uh, when I was in residency, I was working eighty hours a week or so at the hospital, or depending on the rotation that I, that I was in, sixty to eighty hours a week. And uh, I was trying to do barbell medicine on the side, and uh, yeah, production suffered there as far as like putting out podcasts, putting out articles, putting out. You know, other information. Um, But since uh, leaving sort of clinical practice, we've been able to do a whole lot more, which is why now we're across all the social media platforms and we're really trying to extend our reach. At some point, I'd like to, you know, reach influencer status. I don't know like how many followers I have to get or how. (laughs) what I have to do to do that. But, uh, I think as, as our audience continues to grow, um, we'll be able to to make a positive difference in, in both those groups, again, healthcare uh, providers and then
0: strength coaches. That's, that's the idea. That's amazing. I think to kind of go off of what you said, I think there will be a shift in the fitness world and strength coaching world where people are going to start to acknowledge the work that you guys are putting in and some of these bigger coaches that are really trying to broaden the scope of everything that's going on and everything that's changing from an objective point of view. So going off of that, has it been a little bit slow in your opinion or has there been any resistance or pushback from more of the medical practitioners that you're trying to educate about the guidelines? Because I feel like it must be a little bit frustrating at times, especially for maybe some of the older pops who are resistant to change. So have you experienced any of that? Um, You know... It's
1: not something I had thought about actually until uh, just now, but um, it's funny, you know, each one of our seminars, we get a handful of, of doctors like, you know, MDs or DOs who show up and uh, in, in general, I mean, if they're coming to a barbell medicine seminar, they're obviously at least somewhat familiar with, with our stuff. So those folks are completely bought in. They're like, I want to take away as much from this, this seminar as possible so I can bring it back to my patients, which is super cool. So no pushback from them. Um, interestingly, as I appear on more and more podcasts or more and more media goes out, I get um, people who are less familiar with our brand who reach out. Uh, and, and what's most interesting, I don't know if this is just like a selection bias thing or, or if just the, the older individuals have more time to write emails, but the emails I get from these folks, man they're big supporters. They're like, this is great. This needs to be, you know, uh, uh, uh promoted so that more people know this. I, I actually haven't gotten, and I'm, I sh- I'm going to, I should knock on wood because, you know, this has been a, a positive thing. I haven't gotten much, much, if any pushback from the healthcare um, field outside of like really what I would consider fringe, uh, providers. And I don't mean that, that they are like in some, crazy specialty like radiology oncology i have not that i'm um, what i'm saying is that these some there are some providers out there who are hardcore like keto for example or or they have some other kind of pet diet or exercise protocol that they love and uh, we're like you know the evidence out there for example on keto is not that great so let's you know adjust what we say about this aqu- accordingly and they're like no keto does this this and this and we're like mm, it's really hard to hold that opinion so we get some pushback there but uh not really from from healthcare providers they're they're pretty accepting on this and i think the biggest limitation that we have is that um we are not in front of enough healthcare providers so the way we were combating that one thing we did we wrote these two uh very extensively cited articles in a uh, on strength training and primary care that were published in a uh, an online journal called UpToDate. Up to like the Doctor's Google. So effectively, you know, hundreds of thousands of doctors across the world are now now have access to what we think about Primary care and what it can do for different conditions and how to prescribe it, which is cool. Um, another thing that we're doing is working on getting our seminar approved for continuing medical education. So that way, you know, your doctor who may have no real interest in learning this stuff, but who needs to get his his or her CEUs or CMEs rather to maintain their licensure, is like, well, I can go get you know, 20 contact hours at the seminar. And then the final uh, uh, aim of this is uh, we're getting involved with the American College of Physicians, the ACP, so that we can present at their annual conference and have a booth so that people can just, doctors can just come up and talk to us and uh, try to do this peer-to-peer learning thing. Uh, what I suspect will be like, make this going to kind of take off is that instead of there just being Austin and I and a handful of other folks, that there's hundreds of us not necessarily working with barbell medicine, but just people who are, who've been like kind of infected with the training virus or whatever. And uh, so that there's just an army. And I think that'll help kind of uh, uh trickle out to, to more and more uh, physicians, but no real pushback there. Uh, the bigger pushback we get is really from the strength conditioning field. Um, when we start talking about modern medicine concepts, specifically things like, statin therapy when indicated to reduce uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk, or different medical management of common conditions like high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, obesity even, using weight loss drugs. Um, We get a lot of pushback from people who are in the health fitness field uh, because they have this sort of negative view of big pharma, big medicine, and all this stuff. And, And I think it comes from a place of wanting to help, like they want to help people, but also from a place of, and I hate to say this because it's kind of inflammatory, but a place of ignorance because they don't actually know what the data says on this stuff and that we're really all just trying to help people, uh, but we, we need to stick to the data on, on some of these topics. So Twitter wars ensue regularly when people find out like, oh, these guys actually recommend statins when when, they're <laughs> when people need to lower their atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk. And we're like, uh, yeah, yeah. Because the data says that right now, um, but pe- and so people are like, how can you do that? And it's like, okay, well, there's a, there's a, a long list of, uh, of evidence that we can go through. But yeah, so the bigger pushback comes from probably the strength conditioning field. If I had to pick one, that's really interesting. I would not have predicted that. That's yeah, what but you think, you think about like, you think about people who have like big platforms, right, in the strength conditioning field, and uh, most of them, as a general rule, are not what I would call medical like I have a high amount of medical training and so again a lot of this comes from just a a, either no knowledge or misunderstanding of what we're actually saying or what the current guidelines are um so like a common theme is like oh doctors don't know anything about nutrition it's like just a thing that people say and it's like well while I agree that you know the overall nutrition knowledge like you know fundamental knowledge is not great in most uh, physicians, uh, the recommendations that are uh, put forth by the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, the USDA, et cetera, that are kind of pushed upon physicians to recommend are all reasonable. And uh, even if they don't know know, uh, as much as a registered dietitian or somebody who's been extensively working in this field for a long time, the recommendations aren't wrong. You know, and people people will say, "Yeah, but we continue to get more obese." You know, that's that shows that the recommendations are bad. It's like not not really. If people stuck to the recommendations, we'd be in a pretty good place. For example, so yeah, while your doctor might not be the, the best person to talk about with respect to dietary change, for example, um, they probably know what the recommendations are, or at least could lead you to the right place. Uh, and so I don't know that it's helpful to say like doctors don't know anything about this, that, or the other. Uh, and, and in the same in the same breath, I probably wouldn't go to my doctor asking for exercise advice. Like, yay, my squat has been plateaued for the last three months. <laughs> what do? Um, I don't think that's 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 something you should necessarily care if your physician knows about. Um, but they also doctors should. Most certainly not be putting bad narratives in, in patients' heads about like the risks of resistance training or something like that. that's a big that's a big misstep that I think is probably one of the most egregious errors I see and so with in that case, I am more on the side of the strength and conditioning coaches who are like these doctors don't know what they're talking about It's like, well that, in that case, yes, I agree and I'm as mad as you are so
0: So it sounds like it's a lot of figuring out where that line exists between people and trying to bridge the all or nothing sides and that yeah. sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No. Yeah. So it, yeah, it's just, I, I think, I think that's a
1: perfect way to sum it up. Uh, uh, if you're all or nothing, you know, like these people are all bad or these people are all, like, that's probably not a logical position to hold, but we're, and we're, so we're trying to fight stigmas on, on both ends, I think. But um, overall, I, I think if you had to, I had to pick where am I getting more, where are we getting more pushback from? It's probably the health fitness field rather than, than other doctors. Other doctors are like, okay, you guys made an argument, you provide evidence uh, and your peer to peer learning seems good. You know, on the other hand, you have that same type of interaction with a strength conditioning coach. You make an argument, you provide your evidence and, and, and then your recommendations and they go, they don't read the, the resources provided. They don't read the, the, they don't provide any evidence to counter your claims. They just go, no, I don't believe that. It's like, Oh, okay. I mean, that's, you can do that. You're free to do that, but it's not really a, a useful engagement. So.
0: Something you said in the last bit that you were talking about is about narratives. One of the narratives mm-hmm. that I love that Barbell Medicine has been talking a lot on and especially writing a lot of content on is on the concept of pain and more oh, specifically yeah. chronic pain. So I am not an expert on that. So I would love to pick <laughs> your brain on just how you guys are trying to change the narrative around chronic pain and where people are getting it wrong. So I would sure. love to hear your thoughts on that. Is like I know it's obviously a very broad topic to tackle right now, but just yeah. could you could you um, give me like the cliff notes of everything because like you guys have putting out so much content on that, and even now after reading so much of it, my head still spins when reading sure. some of it. So
1: yeah, yeah. the pain is a, a incredibly nuanced topic, and but it's very. You know, it's such a common issue, like, we don't even bother asking people in our seminar, like, hey, who in here has experienced pain, like part of the human experience. I think Nietzsche and DMX both said, to live is to suffer, but to find meaning in the suffering, that's, you know, that's, there's something to that. So, I don't know, DMX and Nietzsche have like the same, (laughs) the same outlook on this, uh, which I always find funny. Um, Okay, so, here's, here's how this went down. Um, prior in 1977, this physician, Dr. George Engel, came out uh, came up with this new theory um, on how pain actually like occurs and people experience pain. They called it the biopsychosocial model, which basically means there are biological, psychological, and social inputs into the pain experience, suggesting that not only sort of biological causes, which we could uh, you know kind of categorically. Discuss like tissue damage or uh, nociception, which is basically the nerve uh, endings that that carry um, stimuli to the brain being stimulated and, and thus causing pain. Uh, that those are biological causes. Psychological causes include mood states, you know, depression, anxiety, um, attitudes towards different activities, etc. And then social inputs include social learning, um, conditioning. Uh, cultural understanding of of, of pain and, and, and that experience and all of these things kind of come together uh, to manipulate the pain experience that people have and so different contexts with even with the same injury can cause different amounts of pain. Prior to that, we had this biomedical model, which basically means if you had pain, there was some tissue damage, some structural abnormality and that caused pain, but it didn't really account for. All of the wide variety of different pain symptoms that people had from the same "quote unquote" injury or defect, and it didn't account for uh, people who had like had a limb amputated yet still had pain in the amputated limb. We call it phantom limb pain. So conditions like that. So we needed a better model to represent like what the heck is going on. So that was in the 70s. <sighs> the problem is the average time it takes to ad- adopt a new medical change is like 17 years. Um, and so that would have put us in the mid-90s before the biopsychosocial model really gained traction. It hadn't gained traction until, you know, the mid-2010s, like 2010s, like teens, you know, and it's still we're still fighting an uphill battle. So we were actually exposed to this in medical school our first year, but we were too dumb to really even, like, conceptualize it. We didn't have a mental model to accept, like, wow, this pain stuff is super complicated. Maybe there's more to it than just, like, Oh, you have knee pain because there's tissue damage. Maybe it's more complex than that. Or you have low back pain because it's always a herniated disc, when in fact, it's usually not a herniated disc that's causing low back pain. So uh, what happened was uh, we had both graduated from medical school and were out in residency and, and and still working with people. And we just got sucked into the rabbit hole of pain science. And in the field of pain science, this stuff has been being researched and uh and and kind of being discovered for years and years and years we basically uncovered a mountain of evidence that was always there but we just uh, weren't familiar with it and so what's happened then is our our ideas of what causes pain and how people experience pain and then therefore how to treat quote-unquote pain uh has all morphed and we feel like this is such a huge issue especially as far as it goes to people uh, being a barrier for people participating in exercise like we are charged with bringing some of this knowledge to uh, the masses. And then also in a context of like injury rehab, return to activity, like huge, huge deal. So we feel like, yeah, we, we've got to put out good information on this. And then in addition to that, we also feel compelled to prevent the spread of misinformation, which we feel like, again, just builds these false narratives and harmful narratives around people like they're fragile if you do things wrong, you're going to get hurt. Um, you should be afraid of these exercises because they're particularly injurious. Any sort of thing that creates a barrier to people participating in an exercise. Um, right now, we think that pain is a complex experience that again has biological, psychological, and social inputs that, combined with a person's environment and their own sort of personality, they experience pain in different in different ways. Which means that you and I could have the same injury. Quote, unquote, same, you know, biological uh, issue, but given different contexts and different experiences and different previous social learning and conditioning, we could have completely different symptoms. You could have, we could both have, for example, uh, three level herniated discs. So L4, L5, L5, S1, S1, S2, all herniated. Uh, you could have debilitating pain that you can't walk. Whereas I could go pull a deadlift PR than that, you know, or vice versa, just based on um, uh, different, different sort of contexts and, and experiences, and so putting out this information whew, has been cathartic in a way because it's like um, it, it helps us understand it, and then also like be able to express like frustration with treating pain previously. Uh, but and in addition to that, we feel like it's really helpful to the field for um, kind of this what I would consider the initial step of in management. So people have who have pain, people are like, well, what do you do with somebody who's got pain? It's like, well, look, one of the first things you do is is education. That's literally like one of the first recommended treatments um, for for many of these, these pain issues. And uh, so we get to kind of start, get the ball rolling there early on. And we have a lot of resources and we continue to put out more resources to kind of give people a... a uh, I, you know, more information that they can kind of internalize and that will help them on their journey. So that's, yeah, uh, a brief, well, not so brief way of talking about how we got here and then what we're trying to do. Um, it's a huge topic. And I think that we'll be writing about this until Barbell Medicine is no more, uh, which, which
0: is fine by me because I, I, like, I like this stuff. It's super interesting to me. And speaking to that helpfulness, um, to anyone who has not checked out Barbell Medicine's content and especially their educational stuff on pain, I would highly suggest doing so. I know for a fact that how you guys educate coaches and athletes to work around pain and kind of test different variations to keep progressing forward, that personally has helped me a ton, especially from my coaching point of view. So highly recommend checking that out. To go into a lighter topic, the Barbell Medicine podcast. You guys have a podcast, super fun. It's always a good time. I would love to ask you about that growth of the podcast and when you officially started that in relation to Barbell Medicine starting up. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Barbell Medicine started,
1: I think the first time I actually, like, like I registered for the LLC was late 2011. Um, and then the first podcast we recorded was on I think, osteoarthritis. And that had to be my intern year during the spring. So 2017, I mean, there was some years in the middle that I, we were, I was so resistant to doing it. One, because I know with podcasts, how most people do podcasts, they just start them and then they die off because you just stop recording, stop putting out material. And then also we felt like every time that we do a podcast, we can't just talk. I, like, I can't just call you and be like, hey, Jake, what's up, man? How you doing? Like nobody, nobody's listening to it. Our- or stuff just for pure entertainment value. Like I wish that were the case. I wish I were like funny enough or engaging enough that uh, that was the case. But um, so each time that we do an episode, we have to like do a lot of legwork as far as organizing our thoughts, organizing research, making sure our show notes are detailed enough that people can like go off and learn on their own. But uh, I think the first episode we did, um, like in the first month, maybe got, I don't know, 2000 downloads or something like that, which is uh, not a lot. Which was initially kind of discouraging, but also expected because I know when you start launching new social media content, like, it's going to take a while to get traction. Now, every time that we release a podcast in the first week, we get about 20,000 downloads. And on average, our podcast is in the 100,000 download per month range, which is cool. You know, That's great. Uh, I always feel bad that, like when people come up to me and they go, hey, I've listened to all your podcasts. I'm like, oh. <laughs> like, sorry, I don't, I feel like I should apologize. Like I need a, a better radio voice or, or something like that. But, um, it's, it's, uh, it's cool that people have, uh, started listening to it and uh, continues to grow. I think one of my big goals for, the podcast is to get more and more guests, like actual experts in their field who don't participate as much in social media. So we want to get people who are doing the primary research to come on and talk about, hey, you did the study, what did you find? Or, or people who don't really have a voice uh, on social media as much uh, to kind of at least, at least share their thoughts. Uh, one guy that immediately comes to mind is uh, Alan Flanagan. Alan Flanagan is a really smart guy. He's getting his PhD in... Uh, it's, it's nutrition, like public nutrition, I believe. He's also got a law degree and he's got his registered, he's an RD. And uh, in any event, his big thing is like public policy as it pertains to nutrition um, in, uh, in the UK. And so, but, and he's on social media, but he just never posts. He says he's so frustrated with it. So it's like, when we get him on our podcast, we're just like picking his brain, like, Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? He's got so much material to share. I'm like, cool. Well, we'll give you a platform to share it. Um, so yeah, that's it's really cool. I like the podcast a lot. It's much faster to put out content that way than like writing a ten thousand word article. Also, uh what I've noticed um since I started doing these, I do narrations now of our articles, meaning I just read them to people and then uh provide a synopsis at the end. Our podcast will get more downloads than the article gets downloads. Which I don't know if that's just the way people choose to consume information or, uh, or something like that, but it, it has been
0: an interesting finding. That's really interesting. I wonder if it has to do with people just being on the go more often or being able to play it wherever they're at and so forth. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like instead of having to sit down and read, like, uh, you know, a 40 minute read or just listening to me talk, you know, for that, maybe it's easier. Or again, and this is me, you know, hoping it's true. Maybe they just like
0: the sound of my voice.
1: It's like, hey, soothe me. Give me. <laughs>
0: that's, I, I don't mean, know. That's exactly I I listen to this podcast every night before bed. So, I, I could see yeah, other right, yeah, I put you to sleep. I put you to sleep. Yes. <laughs> in a good in a good, way. Um, in a good way. So, I have I have my favorite Barbell Medicine podcast episode of mine. It was the one on strength coaching. I want to know what your favorite podcast to date has been.
1: Oh, man. It's a good question. <sighs> I think uh, one of the favorite, one, my favorite ones was probably with Dr. Nadolski We did a two-part series on obesity. Um, one, so Spencer Nadolski I met him in medical school. We were both living in Norfolk, Virginia at the time. And so it was myself, Austin and Spencer. And we just kind of talked about obesity, both diagnosing it and treating it and including like all the different medical management, surgical managements, and then like just a bunch of misconceptions. And the thing is, Spencer is such an expert on this. He's board certified in obesity medicine. He's also a board certified family medicine doc and he actually does this. So he's got a lot of practical experience in addition to like straight up just academic knowledge. So that was probably my favorite because we're all good friends. And then it was just knowledge bomb after knowledge bomb after knowledge bomb. And while he was talking, I was like, huh? Yeah. I never thought about it like that. Huh? Never thought about it like that. Uh, And so I think that one is probably my favorite from like a content standpoint. As far as the most fun to record, uh, it was probably a Q&A that we did in Seattle of last year, which we put up on a podcast. The thing was, here's what happens at these seminars. I mean, we're lecturing for like 16 hours, right? So uh, over, over two days, and it's just a long weekend. And what happened, you know, afterwards, you, you have a, a, a nice cocktail, and people are asking you questions. I might have had an extra cocktail. And the thing is... <laughs> I, I was not under the influence, but I was probably a little more disinhibited than normal. And I think I'm more funny when I, when I like that. So yeah, anyway, people, they were asking us about, um, uh, the current exercise science. And I found that, uh, the resp- the responses were, were really, I've, uh, I think true and, and, and entertaining. And then also like, informative as far as like how I think people should go about getting knowledge in the strength conditioning field. So that was my, the most fun one to record. The most informational one was the one on Spencer with Spencer Nadolsky. And I, you know, if you guys are interested, listen to our
0: podcast, it's fun. We can, we could always use the traffic. Final question on the podcast. If you could have any guest alive, dead anyone at all, who would it be (sighs) and why? Oh man. That's a,
1: Really, really good question. So I think, okay, so it has to be somebody who's not coming up on the podcast. Um, so, for instance, we have we're going to do a podcast with Z Dog. If you're familiar with him, he's uh, he's a physician, Z Dog MD. He puts out a lot of good public health information. So we're already doing that. So he can't be the one that I wish that we could get on a podcast. Um, one of the the people who I'd really love to get on the podcast is David Epstein. David Epstein wrote a book called The Sports Gene, um, which was super interesting if you're interested at all in like strength conditioning and like the science behind it. Super, super fascinating book. His recent book, um, Range, is also extremely good. And I'm not getting any money from this. Like, he doesn't, we're not like in cahoots. He just, this is great. But the way he thinks about problems with respect to training and exercise performance and athletic performance is super, it's just fascinating. And his fund of knowledge is, out of this world he, he said like in an interview that when he goes to write a book what he does for a year prior to starting writing he reads 10 papers a day which you know sounds like a lie but maybe not because when i hear him talk like that seems that seems uh like it's got some potential so it would either be david epstein because i think that would be a really fun episode or uh uh, uh paul Offit. paul Offit is another author who i read all of his books he his latest book called bad advice Is fantastic and also Pandora's Lab. um, Just great books. He is a pediatrician. He invented the rotavirus vaccine. Um, He's big on public health as far as from a vaccination standpoint and not like taking mega vitamins and stuff. The guy's been on Good Morning America all over the place. His biggest thing now is uh, sort of uh, science communication. Like, how do you communicate science to the general public to get them to change what they're doing? And so I think just talking to him about that, given his experience in the, uh, in the, with the mainstream media and, and communicating, you know, scientific ideas, that would be, yeah, that'd be cool. And then f- finally, wildcard, I know you asked for one person and these are all a lot. I, I don't know. I can't, <laughs> I can't do it. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson would be fantastic. Like, I don't, you know, I got him, have a man crush on him just from a science standpoint. And I know that he's not big into like exercise or fitness or health, uh, you know, nutrition. But again, his fund of knowledge is excessive. And I like I listen to his podcast all the time. was a Star Talk Radio. He does have a radio voice, and that is very soothing to me. So I think that having him on a podcast would also be would also be great. So there you go. Three three picks. Probably not as juicy as maybe uh, you were expecting, but that's that's who I would pick.
0: No, those are, I think those are plenty juicy, especially for the context of what you do. Um, sure, yeah. So one final thing that we like to do on our podcast is just ask, ask a little bit more of like rapid fire questions, right? So okay. my first question for you is, what's your biggest social media pet peeve right now? oh (laughs) no try to keep this one brief (laughs) (laughs) yeah sure
1: um it's probably has uh when people post up infographics on pain and there's like a mushroom cloud like oh don't bend over like this and there's a mushroom cloud coming out of somebody's back or like you know text neck or something like oh you know texting is a new smoking or it's just it's usually an infographic with a terrible caption and the thing is they're trying to be informative and trying to help people or whatever, but they they're missing the boat from a pain science perspective and they're building this harmful narrative. And, and, you know, I think that's doing a disservice, even though they're trying to help people. It's just, it's more harmful than good. And uh, yeah, that's probably the most annoying we get Austin and I share these between our, ourselves and uh, people tag us. They're like, Oh, what do you think? I'm like, I can't get into this. I can't get sucked in. So uh, those, that's probably my biggest social social media pet peeve.
0: Going off of that, what is your favorite, well, not necessarily going off of that, but what is your favorite movement sure. to coach?
1: Uh, my favorite movement to coach is lifting other people's spirits. No, uh, like, <laughs> no, uh, the favorite one to coach is probably the deadlift, mainly because uh, like at our seminars, again, so if we get a handful of physicians each time, we get a handful of people who have never lifted before. And if you think about, think about teaching your mom or dad or somebody or your grandparent like how to lift, right, and you're going to have them deadlift. And their narrative or their like, preconceived notion about the deadlift is this is inherently dangerous because I'm picking something up. I'm stressing my back and teaching somebody who's never lifted anything from the floor how to do that and showing them that they're resilient, that they can do it safely and that they can train this is super rewarding. So the deadlift is probably my favorite one. Also super simple. The squat's got some more stuff going on, but the the deadlift itself is probably
0: my favorite movement to coach. Yeah. All right. What exercise is glorified and it really shouldn't be do you have any in mind? Um, dang, dang! You know, I think something that gets
1: probably a lot of—I'm uh, I'm, going to take a different—a different approach here. Okay. Well, yeah. So, so one exercise that's probably get, get gets a bad rap, you know, particularly in in powerlifting, strength, conditioning circles, but probably shouldn't is the sumo deadlift. Um, people say, oh, the sumo, you know, yeah, they pulled up, but it's sumos. It doesn't count or it's a worse exercise than a conventional deadlift. I'm just like, why? Like we're just making up stuff. Uh, everything's arbitrary. Strength is specific to the specific range of motion and joint angles and contraction velocity and everything else and, and how you train it. So if somebody prefers to pull sumo, like that's fine. Um, so, you know, the most overrated exercise, it, you know, maybe it's, the trap bar deadlift because people were like oh i can do this and it's inherently safer it's not or it's inherently better it's not from a training adaptation standpoint like hypertrophy or strength it's just different so yeah i think that answers your question but it's it's got to be one of those two
0: yeah no I, I think i think that answers it well enough i always laugh sure. at uh some of the comments we get when we write on sumo deadlifts especially world records and we get some oh get it's some, sumo doesn't count oh my gosh man i don't even get me started here
1: it's like, why doesn't it count? It's, so like, it's within the rules of the competition. Right. And, uh, uh, so then by definition it counts. And then two, like, is it not hard? Like it, like if someone only pulls, I say only cause just different worlds that we live in, if someone only pulls 500 pounds conventional, they're not going to pull 800 sumo, you know, like just go try, you prove it to yourself. It's just a different, it's a different exercise with different, uh, Uh, carry over to different uh, things. And here's the final piece of this. Now, imagine that you're just a sweet old lady living at home, you know, trying to be an independent woman who doesn't need no man. I'm not trying to be sexist. It's just, you know, this is the culture we live in. Um, And you have to pick up something that's awkwardly shaped. How are you going to do that? You're probably going to take a wider stance and try to pick it up in between your legs, which looks a whole lot like a sumo deadlift. So perhaps the transfer over to like, activities of daily life might even be higher than a conventional deadlift if you wanted to you know, make that argument. I, I don't know, necessarily know that I care enough to make that argument, but it is an argument.
0: Yeah. No, it's one of our uh, top hot topics on our Instagram page whenever we share deadlift videos, which is great. Yes. I'm sure. Yes. Fun for you. <laughs> <laughs> so fun. Next question for you. What has been your favorite coffee to date? And now for listeners, coffee is, and now correct me if I'm wrong, a coffee shop slash office that you spend your day working in.
1: Yeah. So if you go to a coffee shop and you set up your laptop, uh, to do work all day, then it's your office too. So it's coffee. Ooh, the favorite one that I, I actually have gone to frequently enough to like, that I wasn't just mesmerized by like, you know, the the scenery the first time. And so I actually went back over and over and over again. Um, gotta be, gotta be Rose Cafe in Venice, California. It one They serve my favorite coffee, which is Verve coffee roasters. That's a brand out of Santa Cruz. It's, Amazing coffee, it's great, and uh, and then the ambiance in Rose Cafe is great, and then finally, one time I was there, I saw Jerry Seinfeld, which you can, you know, yeah, so, wow. I know, right? You, yeah, I was like, I can't say anything, so I'm gonna be like, hey Jerry, he's like, who are you? You know, but at the same time, like, yeah, it was pretty pretty cool. I think once you hit influencer status, you can probably approach Jerry and yeah. say hello. Yeah, once I get once I get <laughs> the blue, the blue check mark, if I get a blue check mark, I can approach him. But like in L.A., having a blue check mark is like it's better than having an M.D. Right? No one cares if you're a doctor; they care if you've got that uh, that blue check mark. Uh, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, next question for you, and this is because you and I both share Missouri roots. What is your favorite thing to do in St. Louis? Ooh, man a good question so
1: we were just in st louis um and so honestly take the like the, uh, g- doing like a little taste of st louis was, uh as far and and doing a foodie trip was was most fun so i got to take all of the crew the barbell medicine seminar staff so it's alan thrall myself leah lutz tom Capitelli, and dr austin baraki i took them to emos right nice. square square beyond compare um now if you're from st charles county which i think are you from st charles county i grew up in st charles yeah yeah, so you know, then you're like, "Ooh, you should take him to Stefanina's or Cecil Whitaker's." It's like, "Look, man, in the city—it's it's emos." All right, fair enough. So, emos is a square beyond compare. It's a really thin crust pizza, with provol cheese. If you haven't had it, you should do it. Uh, tell me, don't at me if you hate it because I'm I'm fragile. And then I took him to Ted Drews. So, which is yeah. So in St. Louis, like that—that's probably you know take, showing people where to eat. Uh, that's probably my favorite. The uh, runner-up was going to we went to Pappy's, which
0: great barbecue so if you're in st louis you gotta you gotta eat your way through the city that's probably the best thing to do 100 percent. i think the ted drews and honestly if you like fritz's too the concretes Ooh. are amazing yeah yeah people are gonna be like hey these guys sound like they're just in endorsing and eating all this junk food and it's like well <laughs> within <laughs> context within context <laughs> yes 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 and then on top of the food you also have to check out the city museum that is hands yeah. down one of the best times it's hard to yes, explain yes, yeah, so the city museum, you got to check out, you got to do the
1: arch. Um, and then I think also, so here's a little known thing in right by St. Louis university's campus, there is the motorcycle museum. So if you're all into motorcycles, they have all these old bikes and, and new bikes as well. And all this, uh, memorabilia, it's like, it's like walking into a, uh, a, a cracker barrel, but for, uh, gear And it's, uh, it's really cool. The only other museum that we have that's you know, I think a national museum or something like that is the uh, the bowling museum, which I would not recommend unless you're big into bowling. But yeah, the Moto Museum, the art museum, and then uh, checking out the Arch. If you did all that while you're in St. Louis, like pretty good. You're missing the botanical garden. You're missing, uh, you know, going to Forest Park and checking out Art Hill. But I don't know. That's yeah. That, I've yeah, given you the the key to the
0: city. That's I it. agree. I agree with you. Three to four days, good with St. Louis. Um, yeah, you got it. <laughs> Well, that wraps up our podcast. A big thank you for coming on, man. Would you mind sharing where people can follow you and find you if they want to learn more? Sure. Uh, so, for all our content, uh, it's
1: archived and uh, posted regularly over on our website, uh, barbellmedicine.com. I'm on Instagram, Jordan underscore barbell medicine. We also have a, a, a main account, which is barbell underscore medicine. I'm on YouTube, barbell medicine. And then our podcast you can find on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast.
0: Uh, check us out. If you uh, like our stuff, you should subscribe and uh, yeah, we put out stuff there regularly. Sounds good. And a big thank you. And we will have everything linked down below in this podcast when it goes up on the site. Big thank you for coming on the podcast. It was great having you. Hopefully some folks learned some things and then we will hopefully have you back for maybe a part two down the road. Yeah. Thanks Jake. Really appreciate it.